Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Across the globe, the financial advice community continues to navigate a significant period of change. The need for financial advice and guidance has only increased, intensifying the demands placed on advisors and their most valuable commodity, their time spent with clients. Morningstar Wealth's support for the advice community has also evolved by providing an integrated suite of offerings to equip advisors as they seek to empower investor success. This environment of increasing global demand for advice and the evolution of new and improved capabilities available to advisors can be summarized in one word, opportunity. Hello, and welcome to Simple But Not Easy, where we turn complicated financial developments into actionable ideas. This is a podcast from Morningstar's Wealth Group, where we equip financial advisors with our best ideas to remove friction and help clients achieve their goals. I'm Jonathan Lindstrom, Managing Director of the Americas for Investment Management, and today I'm joined by Daniel Needham, President for Morningstar's Wealth Group. He promises straight talk, where he'll share his observations on the value of advice and take you behind the scenes, including his own journey to date. This is a refreshing chat that is sure to get you thinking. If you'd like to know more about Morningstar's integrated suite of offerings for advisors, please email us at simple at morningstar.com and we'll get you the details you're after. Let's get started. Daniel, welcome back to the podcast. You've been a frequent guest here a number of times and um, we're going to start things a little differently this time. I know, you know, many that have followed uh, in our audience and, and heard you before have heard a lot about your investment expertise and your views on the markets and the and intermediary landscape. But we're going to start a little differently this time. We're going to start a little bit with you, which I know our audience is eager to get to know you a bit more. But tell us a little bit about your background um, and, and maybe what led you up to your current role now. Yeah, yeah thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back on uh, Simple But Not Easy. Um, yeah, I... I I came into the into the industry through the investment management um, sort of channel, and so started as an analyst, and then you know made my way through the investment channel up to sort of portfolio manager, and then started to run sort of multi asset, multi strategy kind of uh, uh, part of uh, the business I worked in, and then um, and there was CIO, and and then yeah really kind of leading investment teams for a number of years and uh, and you know that investing is my kind of first love uh, you know I uh, I'm a bit of a Buffett uh, a Buffett disciple uh, and uh, so you know really just a dyed in the wool sort of you know value investor uh, and so it was you know global CIO until last year actually mm. so uh, but you know had always had sort of you know a bit of a, a business leadership and a investment leadership background but you know would spend the majority of my time you know managing portfolios, working with PMs, analysts, and and building investment teams. So that was a lot of fun. But, you know, I've now got a new chapter. So, um, you know, president of Morningstar's Wealth Group. and uh, But that's, you know, I've been doing that since, um, you know, the beginning of, of this year. And, um, uh, and yeah, really, really exciting. I, I, I love to learn and take on challenges and, you know, it's just a lot of fun. Well, we're certainly going to unpack your current role a bit more as we go on, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stop you again. We're going to go apart from the investment end only. What are your passions and love even outside of investment in the industry? Yeah, you know, look, I'm probably a pretty boring uh, individual, <laughs> so you know, I, I love you know, my hobby is investing as well. I love mm-hmm. investing. I love reading about investing. Um, you know, I love reading. I'm a big reader in. Probably my favorite way of consuming information mm-hmm. is the written word. Uh, unfortunately, it's only English that I can read. So, but I uh, love to read and uh, you know learn new things and you know, pretty wide ranging in- areas of interest when I'm reading. And so that kind of you know I spend a lot of time on that. Um, I love you know love to read and um, exercise. Obviously, stay healthy and uh, love to run. Played a lot of rugby when mm-hmm. I was growing up. 
bit of cricket. That was always fun. Mm. I know it's probably foreign for a lot of listeners, <laughs> but uh, when you grow up in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, you know, it's uh, it's rugby in the in the summer and uh, in the winter, sorry, and cricket in the summer. Mm. So, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, that's that's really it. I'm married uh, my wife Susan. We spent a lot of time together. She's probably my other hobby. <laughs> she probably wouldn't say the same thing about me. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, it, it, last question on this, but you are a voracious reader. We all know you to be so. If you were to recommend one book to our audience that maybe maybe it's a lesser known or maybe it's well known, but just you know something that's really impacted you. Uh, throughout your career or is most meaningful to you? Yeah. Um, I, I guess... I'll give you two if you need it. Today. Yeah, yeah. So from an investment perspective, you know, I, I think anyone who's an investor, and a lot of people talk about investing, but but for me the real awakening with investing was reading Buffett hmm. and Munger, but really reading Warren Buffett's letters and then getting some hands on some of the kind of notes from the shareholders meeting if you're able to kind of get it from... And, uh, and then, yeah, just reading about how he managed money and how he thought about business and how he ran things, that, that was a real eye-opener. I feel like you went to like a, an alternative universe or something when you kind of do that. So I, there's so much written about him. I, I say start with the, the Berkshire Hathaway letters. I, that's had a huge impact on me from an investment perspective, from a personal mm. perspective, how I kind of view the world. And, and I, 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 you know, probably a bit of a fan, but I, I think he's brilliant. Um, and then, you know, books, you know, I love to read, you know, very wide-ranging topics, but uh, but probably um, Who We Are and How We Got Here mm. by David Reck, which is, uh, you know, lo- looks at ancient DNA and and helps us, helps understand, you know, how humans kind of spread across the planet and, and how the different sort of um, uh, migrations of humans out of Africa happened and relationships with Neanderthal and Denisovans in, um, in sort of, in sort of the, the East eastern part of Asia. That, that's really fascinating. One of my favorite books before that is really Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond, which I think has actually really changed the way I thought about the world. And so um, and so he, he was, you know, really talked a lot about how humans have ended up, what are the key drivers of that? And, and a part of that is like he really focused on the migration of humans around the world over time. And, and so, you know, I was reading the Wall Street Journal. I read it every day and, and, uh, and Jared Diamond had reviewed that book, who we are and how we got here. And so I read his review and I bought the book and and it really updated that uh, understanding of, you know, humanity, how humans have sort of populated the planet. Super fascinating. And so if that's your kind of bent, then I, I really yeah. recommend reading it. Fantastic. Well, those authors, thank you. I'm sure we've got some <laughs> Amazon orders being placed now. Great. Well, let's pivot then, uh, Daniel. Let's talk a little bit about your current role, you know, as president of Morningstar Wealth Group. Um, you know, with what you're able and willing to share um, with our audience, you know, talk to us a little bit about your strategy and your vision for the group and, and what you're currently working on. Yeah. So the Wealth Group was created at the beginning of 2012. Uh, so we, you know, at Morningstar, we've you know, really, we've got a great business. We've been helping financial advisors around the world for, for many years now. And we had a number of really good businesses that we felt that, you know, if we were to to really bring them together, to combine them into an, in an organization that, that's really focused on better serving financial advisors and the clients that they serve. And so so we created the Wealth Group and so we moved the Morningstar Investment Management business, uh, the Morningstar Office business, which is really portfolio accounting um, and reporting uh, software and service, Bio Accounts, which is an advisory investor aggregation business, Morningstar.com, which I'm sure many people will know, which is our you know public websites, our you know pu- publishing sites, as well as our subscription services, and then some businesses, so Advisor Logic in Australia, mm-hmm. and really bringing those together within the wealth group to focus on serving advisors and individuals, and we really want to be you know a trusted partner who's empowering investors globally through an integrated suite of uh, wealth offerings, 
that are personalized, um, you know, with uniquely Morningstar insights for both advisors and individuals. And so that's the vision for the group. Mm. And, um, and so my job is to, you know, as president of the group is to lead the group and, you know, work on the, the vision and the, the strategy and structure and, and execution. And, you know, we're really excited about the opportunity we have to, to serve advisors um, and bring the best of, you know, Morningstar together, including, you know, working with great strategic partners, third-party firms as well. Um, but, you know, I couldn't be, you know, frankly happier with the hand that we've been, that I've been dealt with as a leader. And, you know, we've got a mm. super talented and mission-driven team at Morningstar, which, you know, is just an essential ingredient for for success longer term. And, you know, I'm just, I just consider myself very lucky. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. Well, empowering investor success. You mentioned the mission. I know that's obviously the mission of Morningstar. And yeah. so I guess just teasing on that a little further as far as, you know, how much time and attention do you and other members of the leadership team really dedicate to the challenges of financial advisors as part of that vision as they seek to serve their, you know, those clients and investors? Yeah. I, I, for many of our businesses, it's really all, all we do. It's all we mm -hmm. think about. And, um, you know, for us, you know, empowering investor success means helping advisors, you know, have more time in their day-to-day -to, -day to spend more time with, with their clients, which is, you know, doing what they do best. So um, for many of our businesses, it's 24-7. It's, it's all I think about when I'm not reading about, you know, ancient DNA or, <laughs> or you know, uh, staying staying up to speed on, on the markets. But but that's really, you know, how we're organised and constantly thinking about how can we improve mm. advisor experience. And, and, you know, as a mission-driven firm, I think, you know, many firms will have a vision statement, a mission mm -hmm. statement, a purpose. But, but at Morningstar, it really matters. It carries weight. Um, we'll do certain things because we think it's right for investors and, and we won't do certain things because we don't think it's right for investors. And you inevitably leave money on the table and, and we think that's, that's a responsibility that we have is to do the right thing for investors and clients at all times and, and not participate in mm. some parts of the market because we just don't think it's the right thing to do. And so it carries weight, um, it drives decisions um, and we, we think that kind of creates a really positive feedback loop in the business. It, it attracts mm. the right people, the right people do a good job which reinforces the good behaviour, and so it just creates this kind of flywheel of a culture. And, and I think we've got that here, and it starts starts at the top with Kunal Kapoor, who mm. you know kind of lives and breathes the, the mission, and and Joe Mansueto, our executive chairman, who founded Morningstar and you know really built that out. Don Phillips, who you know is is still part of Morningstar, is really you know one of the foundational leaders for Morningstar. Really set the tone for you know that that mission that we have, um, and you know empowering investor success, putting investors' clients first. So um, it's a little bit hard to unpack because it's mm. it's just so kind of embedded and meshed in the in the business you know in in the in the business and the culture. It certainly permeates um, every, you know, I, I've seen you in large meetings, small meetings and yeah. and significant ones where hard decisions are being made where I think that really tests our mettle on on whether, you know, uh, yes, we believe it, but are we going to act on that? And it's been it's been great to see that put into action yeah. um, in, in in those environments. So it's energizing. You know, I think mm. um, you know, obviously we're a company, we're a public company, mm. we've got shareholders, but we exist for the services and the benefits we bring to investors. And 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 over the long term, if they win, then 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 everybody wins. And so mm. I think we're it really does drive what we do. So uh, and you know, for me, I kind of joke and. I don't want to joke too much with Kunal, but I, I say I've almost been ruined uh, to work for any other company for Morningstar because, you know, just the way we think and the way we operate, 
um, it's just so different to other businesses and, and you're kind of like a fish out of water there. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just hope he keeps me on until I retire. Otherwise, I'm going to be stuck. Cheers. <laughs> Great. That's fantastic insight. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, again, from the advisor seat and the value of advice um, to clients. You know, just in your opinion and from your perspective, uh, how has the value of financial advice evolved over the years? Is it better or worse than we were, you know, a decade or two ago? And what do you see there? Um, well, I think everything, you know, most things are better than they were a decade or two, despite all the kind of, you know, the people that, you know, the kind of, I don't know what to call them, people who are kind of, you know. They no love, names, Daniel, no yeah, names. Yeah, so I won't, I won't name them, but, but those people that every time you speak to them, it feels like the world's just got a little bit worse. But but things are rarely as bad as what the kind of doomsday prophesizers mm. kind of suggest. But, um, uh, but, you know, I'd say that, you know, most industries have gotten better over the last 20 years, right? So whether it's um, better technology, better processes, better governance, um, better education, better accreditation. So, so I think you know, financial advice is no exception. I think it's it's gotten better. I think the value that's delivered through advice has improved as you know people have um, you know lowered their prices for advice. The quality of the mm. products and services they're delivering improved. The incentives have, have shifted a bit as well as there's less commission based models, which you can actually work if they're managed appropriately. But but on balance, I think you know just generally the value of advice has improved. The cost to the end consumer when you stack everything up has gone down. Yeah, certainly. And, um, and so from that perspective, I think the value has gone up. The world is is complicated as, a, mm. you know, people always say like we're in a period of high uncertainty. <laughs> I've never actually lived <laughs> through a period of low uncertainty, so I don't know what that is. But um, uh, but I probably say that same expression as myself when I need to. But uh, And so, I, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, he, the role of humans is is just as essential and, um, and uh, people people need help. And, mm. and, you know, there are more people on the planet now than there were 20 years ago. So yeah. more people need help. And so as you put yourself in the shoes of advisors that are navigating this time, uh, Daniel, and, you know, how would you, what would, what would you identify are the key elements for an advisor's value proposition right now to clients? I Just being very tactical, obviously, this is a period where, you know, individuals are seeing their their account balances down, um, and you know, behavioral science teaches us that people, you know, feel the pain of of losses more than the, they enjoy the pleasure of gains. And so, so that's just just being present. Just mm. you know, I I, I think uh, Abraham Lincoln had that line. Um, he was referring to King Solomon, where you know, all the wise men brought you know, King Solomon asked for a phrase that would would be true over all time, and uh, they bought him the phrase, and it was this too shall pass. Mm. And uh, Abraham Lincoln had it was I can't remember which which one of his speech, speeches or letters he had it in, but but I, I, that simple this too shall pass like the value that that can bring somebody who's feeling, you know, the pain of loss and that mm. time. You know, there's just no substitute for that. So right now, the best thing, and I you know I don't need to tell advisors what the best thing they know what the best mm-hmm. thing to do is, but but I, I I see right now that core element of the value proposition: sensible, calm, mm. recognizing that people are feeling these are real emotions. It's not irrational. To, to feel an emotional response to seeing your portfolio down. So, mm-hmm. so that, that role to me is, is, is really important. Um, you know, there's, there's no substitute in my view, just in general, the value proposition, this, let's say this is, you know, for all time for an advisor is, you know, uh, there's no substitute for a knowledgeable, empathetic human who knows your situation um, for, for a person that needs help with a complex, difficult question that's related to their financial affairs. Mm. I, you, you, we're all humans. We've all been there. And so, you know, 
an advisor that I've known for you know many years from Australia, you know, he he has a simple way of describing it. He says that whenever I meet with a client and they ask me a lot of questions, he says they're really getting to the ultimate question, which is, am I okay? Hmm. Uh, and um, you know, as good as digital tools and you know, digital advice and robo are, there's just really no substitute for that human. Somebody that understands mm-hmm. you, understands your situation, can relate. And to me, that will remain critical. So there's the financial element. Let's call mm-hmm. it the the utility. You know, yeah. the utilitarian part of it, which is delivering the advice that's a rational calculation, the logical side. And then there's a behavioral element, which is you know, engaging with people, understanding their situation, you know, empathising with them, letting them know that they're okay so that they can live their lives and, you know, sleep at night. And, mm. and you know, sure, maybe you, you end up delivering some financial advice that isn't maybe the most optimal, you know, from a spreadsheet perspective, mm. but it's no good if people can't stick to it. So, so I don't know, looking out 20 years, you know, do I think that's going to change? Mm. Probably not. I mean, sure, the products and services and the tools, but yeah, it's, it's been pretty durable so far. Hmm. Interesting point too. And you mentioned um, the human element so many times there and and uh, referenced Robo as well. And as we see, you know, literally everybody from now Walmart and uh, they're joining other private equity folks and entering this space, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on those types of entrants? Yeah, um, well, a huge amount of respect for Walmart as a company and an institution and, um, you know, phenomenally successful. And so, you know, you if you could pick competitors to enter your industry, <laughs> you don't want good ones. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's generally not how it goes. Um, but uh, so I think that, you know, they've really gone into the venture capital area. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of more of a, you know, a fintech startup from incubator from what I from what I remember, um, which is, you know, frankly, a pretty crowded space right now in yeah. VC. So they're, they're not alone. Um, it's a, you know, a very valuable part of capitalism and the market. It's kind of uh, the primordial soup of <laughs> mm. of a market based mm. system. You know, VC people risk their capital, and and a lot of them fail. Um, but some of them knock it out of the park and they do well. And so, so you, you know, I think having you know good VC firms that are well backed in there trying new things is good for the industry longer term. Um, you know, and and. I'd classify them a little differently to sort of private equity, which I call leveraged buyout firms that <laughs> specialise in taking oh. leverage and buying existing businesses. But, yeah, the VC space, I think the industry benefits from new innovation. Yeah, leave it to Walmart to be able to pull it off, right? <laughs> That's so, right. Low um, prices. It, you use the term durable, and I really like that term a lot. And I think, you know, as we think about the needs of advisors, you know, in the future and going forward, what are those durable needs of advisors in, in a sense of what's – what will enable them and equip them to perform at their best to deliver to the clients? You know, I guess just who and what, if anything, do they need by their side as, as far as uh, yeah. uh, that tool set? So I, I kind of will flip that a little and say, like, for us, you know, we're investing in serving advisors. Mm. And so the question I ask around durable needs is, like, what are the things that I think in 10 years or 20 years from now an advisor is still going to want? Mm. Or, or take the opposite view, is not going to want less, you know. So, and so when I think about those durable needs of an advisor, you know, I think about ease of use and less friction in their workflow. So, you know, do, do I think in 10 or 20 years an advisor is going to want things to be harder to use or easier to use? No, right? So I think if you, for us, if we can invest in that and, and continue to focus and make it easier for advisors to, to use what we provide, help them run their day-to-day, deliver a productivity dividend to them, which then mm. they can spend in a really high returning way, which is engage with their clients. Um, and related to that, you know, I think advisors 
will want to run a more profitable, growing, scalable practice. Mm. I don't think that's going to change in, in 10, 20 years. If anything, it may become more important as um, as pricing pressure may come in. And so it's really a scale game versus, mm-hmm. you know, a stable, being able to charge the, the same fee that you charged in, in all years. So um, I also think that, you know, flipping it a little on, for the investor, I think lower service fees in total for their clients is also going to be continuing. So, um, you know, that comes to the scale game. So mm-hmm. as, as advice practices get larger as you know service providers to advisors and investors get larger the ability to to deliver lower prices i think it may hit flat spots and go up and down but but on the whole i would expect that to continue and you know potential consolidation kind of just supports that and from how they run their practice you know another durable trend is you know more investment choice and flexibility i don't think advisors even though you've got the paradox of choice, it's kind of a well-trodden sort of topic. I think if you're going to serve advice practices and advisors, giving them choice and flexibility so that depending on how they want to run their practice or how they want to manage their clients, they can put what's appropriate in place for them. And so, so you know, when I think about those four areas, they're, they're areas where, you know, there's got a lot's going to change in the mm. industry. A lot of like how things are delivered and but but I think the core of those four, I'd be willing to bet that that they're still going to be pretty important to advisors in ten and twenty years, and that's really what we want to build. That's where we want to focus our time. Hmm. They're the areas that we want to continue to invest in, improve our products and services and engagement. And and the good news is it's a it's a big canvas to paint on, yeah. <laughs> so it's going to keep us plenty busy. Great, and maybe along those line, same lines, Daniel. We talk a lot about you know flexibility and choice. Another topic getting a lot of headlines these eyes is personalization. Yeah. And so, you know, how do we think about that? And obviously that, you know, related to, you know, direct indexing efforts, again, that's a, a lot of offerings out there and a lot of chatter, a lot of headlines. It's a crowded conversation. Um, what are you seeing and what are you expecting as far as the growth of direct indexing? Yeah, I think um, there's, your know, personalization is is a key theme for advisors. And it gets, it's definitely, as you mentioned, related to that choice and flexibility. Um, and so for advisors to be able to deliver a more personalized financial plan and, you know, matching financial assets with the, you know, cap, deploying the capital consistent with the goals and the plan, you know, direct indexing really fits pretty nicely in that in that sense. And so you know, whether it's UMA, Unified Managed Accounts, and being able to combine different um, strategies or managers or investments to match specific goals, um, you know, whether it's you're able to kind of, you know, reflect the person's occupation or their concentrated stock position in the way that the rest of their capital is deployed, that, that's kind of, you know, I consider personalization. Whether you're able to reflect their non-sort of financial preferences like impact or, or ESG elements in their portfolio or not, or maybe go in the other direction. Mm. <laughs> Some people maybe really feel strongly that, you know, fossil fuels are essential for humanity and they want to invest more in them. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways that you can reflect individual circumstances, requirements, preferences. And, and I just view direct indexing as a, you know, as another way of, of building a more personalized goals-based kind of plan for an investor. And the technology has changed such that, you know, you've got the ability to move and store a bunch of data really cheaply, mm. really quickly. You can do complex calculations on the fly, like, you know, optimizations, drawing individual information that's sitting in somebody's brokerage account, like, you know, tax gains and losses. Um, you can trade it virtually for no cost, certainly no direct brokerage cost for many clients. Mm. 
And for some, you know, they can even own fractional shares. So it's made it way easier to build really specific portfolios for individuals with relatively low balances, certainly mm. relative to where they were maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So I think it's going to become really important. You know, direct indexing is absolutely not for everybody. And mm. I think it's one of these things where you have to be careful. This can be a bit faddish and people can get really excited and it's it's not a cure-all. It's going to be appropriate for some clients some of the time. And for other clients, it's not going to be appropriate. And I view direct indexing and personalization as a useful tool in the toolkit for an advisor, but there's no substitute for making sure that it's appropriate for the client. And and that's really where, you know, we're really excited to be launching the product and be participating, but it, but we'll only be providing it through advisors that feel like it's appropriate for their clients. And, mm. and so that's kind of, and again, that gets back to our kind of mission. Yeah, you know, so, very much. And, uh, and so, but yeah, look, it's an interesting area. Uh, and it seems... I know your views. You know the space well. You probably you know the U.S. <laughs> advisor space. What are your thoughts? Like- well, I, I, I tell you, is I, as I'm, I pose the question about durable needs, I think it's from the client perspective, it's durable requirements. Yeah. What, what are their long-term requirements from advisors in the sense of, look, I'm, I'm, I would like, of course, lower costs or reasonable costs depending on the value that I'm receiving. Yeah. But also that personalization, you know, we, we everything is customized these days. And yep. so why would I not want that, you know, to your point about, you know, perspective and re- requirements as far as asset levels and appropriate situations. But um, the durable requirements of, of clients might be another yeah. way to think about that as far as their expectations going forward. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The tax side of it's clear. You know, it's been tax management's been around mm-hmm. a long time. And um, but now, you know, looking at it from net of net of expenses, benefits, yeah. taxes, kind of, as you mentioned, kind of reduces a bit of that cost for the client yeah. if you can if you can manage taxes appropriately. So and let's face it, the only reason why we're talking about this now is because of the evolution of technology. Right? That's, right. That, that's what's really equipped this to have even have this conversation now that we're able to offer this at at those lower account minimums and, and do it in and importantly at a scalable yeah. manner for advisors where it's not just a portion for you know the, that top one percent of their of their book of business anymore. They can really widen out that aperture uh, yeah. and provide that customized engagement, if you will, to a much broader set of their clients. Yeah, and, and that's why the question you asked earlier around um, has the value of advice improved mm-hmm. over the last 20 years? I mean, tech, you, you're spot on, like technology. Things are, things are just getting better. And so um, uh, there's a book, I can't remember, Ros, I can't remember this, the surname of the author, but uh, Factfulness, where mm-hmm. it's about, you know, how humanity has improved. And it just looks at the numbers. And um, again, if you just if you just spent too much time reading all the doomsday prophecies of uh, <laughs> of the, you know, but you'd you'd lose sight of the fact that generally most things have gotten a lot better. Hmm. Hmm. And um, and whilst you know, it's a never ending march forward of progress, hopefully for a very 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 long time, maybe until the sun kind of burns out or something like that. But um, and I think within the, the financial advice industry, it's just the same. Things have just generally gotten a lot better. Fantastic, great. Well, we're going to telescope out a little bit now. Um, you know, as someone who you obviously oversee, you know, uh, financial advisory services uh, across the globe, and you've you're you know from Sydney and lived in London and now Chicago. Um, you know, shed a little light on you know key differences in the financial advice community that you've seen, regulatory differences, et cetera, or are there more similarities than than, than differences? Yeah, I'm going to be boring and say there's uh, more similarities than differences. Uh, you know, it's interesting uh, having spent you know a decent chunk of time with. Advisors in really, you know, really three core markets: so Australia, UK, or you know, UK and um, and the US, and 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 been in a lot of smaller countries, you know, mm. South Africa and India, and well, India's not smaller, but the advice community <laughs> is a lot smaller. So, uh, and uh, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, 
yeah, they're the main markets that I've spent a decent chunk of time in. And um, but the similarities are remarkable. Like there's there's way more that are similar than different across mm. the markets. And it's because it gets back a bit to that point I made earlier, which is, you know, people that are facing complex, difficult questions about their financial affairs, when they've reached a point where they've got a decent amount of financial capital saved over their life, so want to talk to somebody. Yeah. And whilst the different tax jurisdictions and regulatory frameworks and industry dynamics and product structures mean that it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all there's a lot of similarities in, in that problem, especially when you're in a, a sort of a more developed world where there's, mm. you know, re- relatively well-established regulators or or in the case of India where the regulator has been really, really heavily guided by, say, you know, the SEC and the FCA in the UK and, and ASIC in Australia. Um, and so there's a lot of similarities. Um, but, but maybe it's more interesting the differences. Mm. Uh, and so the role that financial planning and goals-based tools plays – it's probably the biggest difference. Um, in Australia, uh, financial planning and financial plans and really regulated forms of advice called statements of advice are really central. Everybody has a CRM and a financial planning, you know, provider and that's the core. Hmm. Now, obviously, there's a human element but it's really, you know, financial planning and that that's a core part of the practice. And and whilst it wasn't called goals-based or anything like that, it was generally cash flow-based planning. Hmm. So a lot of the planning tools would have, you know, an asset liability cash flow-based approach. And and then if you flip that, you go to the UK. You certainly when I was there in, you know, the 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 last decade. <laughs> so early last decade, um, it was very it, it historically been very risk tolerance-based, you know, RTQ kind of risk level based. Hmm. And that was really the core of the advice proposition. And the FSA was moving to the FCA, so the regulator changed their name and after you know, a lot of challenges during the global financial crisis. Um, but that was really risk tolerance-based. And there was always risk tolerance in the US and the, mm. in Australia, but, but that was kind of the really interesting core of there. So it was planning in Australia, risk tolerance in, mm. in the UK. And then here, it's kind of a bit of a mix in the US. And because the US, I think, really has come from the I don't mean to insult anybody, but probably whenever you say that, you're probably about to insult part half, of the more than half of our audience. That's right. right. <laughs> but the US really did come out of the brokerage business, right? Which was stockbroking mainly, and there were parts of the Australian business which came out of that, but mainly it came out of the insurance industry, um, and um, and so you came out of this sort of stockbroking, and so a lot of it came from that sort of stockbroking mm. commission side of things, and so and so that meant that it was a very invest. The US is very investment centric yep. advice, very investment focused, and. And um, and so that was kind of you know and, and with that investment focus it was la- RTQ was there but that was mainly within the larger firms so it was very you know it's really diverse way of delivering advice in the US and what I've seen over the last decade has been real in- increase in financial planning mm. so the US market looking more like the Australian market um, and just planning probably planning and goals just picking up everywhere mm. but but yeah you know a lot of similarities but probably they're the big differences mm. um, but you know. And one's a 60-40, one's a 70-30, one's a, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, I think as you mentioned earlier, it sounds like we've got, um, you know, from an individual investor perspective, a lot of advisors that are engaging them. And, and the question being asked is, am I okay, yeah. right? Regardless of, right, the, the nest eggs that they've worked hard to yep. to earn in, in am I okay is, is prevalent across the world. Yeah, and each advice – each each industry looks at the the individual at the household tax level. Mm-hmm. Is it managed appropriately? The asset location. Are you putting enough into your, your superannuation in Australia? Your pension in the UK? Your four hundred one k here. 
and and so there's a really a lot of the same elements um and uh and so which is really good to see and i think the quality of advice is high in all three markets mm. uh and um and and the independent model is increasing in all three markets mm. so same as what you've seen here yeah you, know, you still have you kind of you know your more broker dealer kind of you know i don't know people sure. don't, don't like the wirehouse term. Still, yeah. Yeah, we still use it, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, that sort of fee-based advice is really picking up everywhere. Fantastic. So looking ahead, Daniel, um, you know, uh, as, we, as we, you think about the industry and what are, well, I guess, what is the industry and or advisors perhaps not paying close enough attention to right now from your perspective that, you know, it might be a future, let's say, landmine or gold mine, right? Either a challenge or an opportunity. Anything in, on, on your mind in that perspective? Yeah, yeah. Um, the usual kind of evergreen <laughs> uh, issues is um, is just comp- I think just complexity of of products and services mm. and I know at Morningstar we always we, we we just carry a healthy level of skepticism when it comes to new things that um, that the industry cooks up and where it's complex it's illiquid it's wrapped in a structure <laughs> you know. Whenever somebody starts to explain something to me, and whilst hmm. I don't consider myself to be the smartest person in the industry, I, I think I have got an ability to understand structures. When I'm struggling to understand something, you know, my natural inclination is to button my wallet. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, the finance industry, our industry, you know, collectively just has a has a really unique way of repackaging the same old garbage over and over again in a mm. more complex structure. Mm. And so that's where I feel like people like our firms like ours like Morningstar really help advisors cut through the noise and mm. and you see the transparency of, of underlying structures. So crypto is a really great example where, you know, mm. whilst blockchain, the blockchain technology is really interesting and could mm. really be widely adopted, yeah. um, that doesn't mean that you should make a ton of money off Bitcoin yeah. or Ethereum or other you know, digital kind of tokens. And and I just think it's a really good time to step back. Mm. If you want to understand the, what folly looks like, what financial folly, what, you know, the South Sea bubble in, in the sort of 1700s and the tulipomania of, you know, 16, 15th, 16th century Netherlands. Oh, my. Look at Bitcoin or even technology-oriented um, companies. An investment lesson and a history lesson all in one yeah. job. That's, yeah. So if it feels too complicated mm. and you don't understand it, mm. Do what Warren Buffett does and put it in the too hard basket. Mm. You know, in, in our industry, you don't get points for difficulty. It's not diving, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, oh, wow, I, I, I kind of cleared this 10-foot. You get you don't get any rewards for that. All you do is you just take extra risks. So mm. focus on one-foot hurdles <laughs> and, uh, and, and keep it simple. Stick the landing on those one-foot hurdles. Exactly. <laughs> Got it. Good. Hey, great. Well, we're, we're almost going to wrap here, Daniel, but I have to ask you, you know, as you think about um, the wealth group now um, and, and your leadership of it, just, you know, what is your vision for success 10 years out from now? How, and how will you know you that you've we've achieved it? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty simple um, that we're serving more advisors and more households around the world hmm. and that we've been able to deliver, you know, better better value for money products and services over that decade that through our investments in the business through technology through resources we're able to deliver more value than what we're charging within the fees of the services that we provide and that's it really and you know at the end of the day advisors are smart they vote with their feet hmm. and um, and if we can do the right thing and bring the best of Morningstar together more of them will want to work with us and 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 serve more of their clients households with us and so so it's pretty simple and you know I think we've got a compelling proposition at Morningstar. I think we've got a compelling uh, trusted brand and and it's a really great opportunity that we have to 
continue to invest and serve more and, and try to play a, you know, be a force for good in the industry. Fantastic. Daniel, I don't think anyone has tuned out just yet. Fantastic discussion here today. So thank you. But uh, 10 second takeaway, if, if anyone has tuned us out, what's one thing you, you think that everybody should remember? From today, um, that uh, that at Morningstar, you know, just to be a trusted partner with financial mm. advisors around the world, and you know, we it's a really big responsibility that we have, and it's one that we're really, really happy to be able to deliver. So, thanks for listening, and thanks for you know uh, being a great host here, Fantastic. Jonathan. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. And there you have it, another episode of Simple but Not Easy. As always, we thank you for your time and attention, and special thanks to Daniel for his time and insights. Again, if you'd like to know more about Morningstar's integrated suite of offerings for advisors, please email us at simple at morningstar.com and we'll get you the details you're after. We also encourage you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, thanks again from the team at Morningstar Wealth. This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.